Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by my co-host, Dr. Kenneth Howell. Ken, welcome, and all of you welcome to join the program. Again, I pray that our discussions are an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear from you, as we have been hearing, and, and we appreciate that. Um, we, we call the program Deep in Scripture because we believe that by getting deep in Scripture and deep in history, deep in tradition, uh, we, we become deeper in our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the goal for this program. We've been working, working through um, uh, the Book of Romans, and uh, Ken, you all right? It sounded like you had an avalanche there in uh, Illinois. <laughs> I had a bunch of books fall down. <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead. Well, I hope you didn't have those. It's good to be with you, Marcus. I hope you didn't have those lined up in order for our discussion today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna get into a big avalanche in this passage today, so this is exciting. <laughs> and that's true because we're looking at Romans chapter five, verses twelve through twenty-one. And of course, this is a continuing study of Romans. So if you're just jumping in to this, you, you may want to go to the website and take uh, take time to listen to the previous programs, look at the previous study sheets, uh, and you can do that at deepinscripture.com. We're looking at this section, Ken, which, as you said, uh, you know, it's an avalanche because there's a lot of theology in these passages, and there have been a great variety of opinions how to interpret these passages throughout church history. And uh, But before we get into the passage, we usually like to take an email, and uh, you know, very providentially, Ken, this email uh, fits very much into the context of today's passage. So let me read the email, Ken, and then I'll throw it over to you quickly. Uh, the person writes, Dear Mr. Grodi, Dr. Howell, um, and he's right, I'm just a mister and you're a doctor, Ken. A uh, short time ago, <laughs> you had some discussion in Deep in Scripture about salvation. I was wondering if you could tell me how you would respond to the following view about salvation and hell that there's been a very long discussion about. So I'm assuming this writer is either having an email or a chat discussion with a variety of folk. Here's the question, or the opinion. Quote, God is all-powerful. God is all-loving has created us and wants us all to be saved. Therefore, he will find a way to make us all want to be saved and choose him. No one will go to hell because God hasn't stepped off from the throne. Catholics are saying that God is not all-powerful and sovereign and can't make what he wants to happen happen. God would not create us to let us lose such an important thing as salvation. End of quote. Thank you very much for your help and for all the information that you provide to people. Ken, have you heard a question like that before, or an opinion like that before? I have not uh, directly, but uh, there's all kinds of interesting little um, <laughs> indicators in here of some some um, thinking that's off the off the track. Um, I think before I reach a conclusion about it, I'd like to perhaps point out the the reasoning behind this uh, this view. Um, <clears throat> It's that God has somehow not, it's the accusation that the Catholic Church believes is God is not all-powerful and not all-sovereign, which is not the true at all. Right. Um, furthermore, the, the point of view that's being expressed here is apparently that um, if you believe that God is all-powerful and sovereign and 
controls all the events of uh, the world, then that would mean that uh, he doesn't give freedom to human beings to make decisions. And that also is not the case, as we'll see in just a moment. But um, so the, would God allow anyone to go to hell? And the answer to that is uh, we agree. No, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Um, but he gives human beings the freedom of choice to choose him. And there's a reason why he gives them that freedom of choice. Because the, it's in the very nature of love to choose to love or not to love. Animals don't choose to like you because they love you. They don't have that power. What they do is they're responding to their instinct. You feed them, they like you. <laughs> you beat them, they hate you, right? And they get you. But they're not choosing to do that. They're simply doing it because it's an, an instinctual response. Human beings, on the other hand, have the power to love. And when it says that you should love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind and strength, um, it's it's saying you need to choose that love. That's what this person is for, is uh, has left out, that God wants us to love him. It's not that he doesn't have the power to do these things. It's that he's given, he's freely chosen not to compel us to go to heaven. Yeah, something else behind this statement reminds me, Ken, of what has seemed to me to be one of the flaws behind the entire Reformation Protestant movement. And when I say this to any Protestant listeners, I'm not trying to take a jab here, but I'm just maybe challenging you to think a little bit because it seems to me that one of the keys that led to Luther's movement away from traditional Catholic theology and then led even more through John Calvin was a move away from the recognition of the necessity of good philosophy and logic behind theology. And it seems to begin, I mean, you go today to any major university and you might take a philosophy class, if you take it at all, as an evangelical Protestant, we had so rejected philosophy that I never even took a philosophy class in seminary. But for most of Christian history, we've recognized that philosophy, good philosophy, is an outpouring of God's truth. And uh, we see it all through the history of philosophy. But by the time of Luther, when he went to college and was studying, he was receiving of, uh, an inadequate foundation of philosophy. Uh, kind of like today, if you go to a university and you have a bad philosophy class. Well, he was receiving, in, a, in his foundation, a rejection of Thomas Aquinas and that whole movement and a, and a foundation of nominalism which then infected his thinking. But it, it, in my view, it infects the reason. And by the time it got to Calvin, what we have is this emphasis on individual interpretation based on the way I understand logic. And it can be very messed up in how we do logic if we haven't studied how to do logic correctly. And I see that in his answer. He's trying to use a philosophical, logical argument that is flawed because it begins with, a, with an axiom. God is all-powerful. And that is an axiom of logic 
that he therefore begins that is so rock bottom unchallengeable that everybody agrees God is all-powerful number two God is all-loving okay we agree with that there's axiom two axiom three he has created us and wants us all to be saved well is that an unchallengeable axiom well that actually comes from I think first or second Timothy when God desires all to be okay we believe with that then he three therefore he will find a way to make us all want to be saved and choose him now wait a second Ken is that an obvious philosophical logical reasonable conclusion that we therefore must accept but he moves on from there as if it's an axiom and my question is wait where does that come from uh, no one second no one will go to hell so he's he's used philosophical logic to think he's proved his foundational idea when it's a flawed flow of philosophical logic. Well, the person who says this, I don't know if this person is a Calvinist, but he sure sounds like one. The Calvinist is that, well, God wants something to happen. Man has no power to overthrow it. Now, that is certainly true in the sense that God has the power to overrule any of human decisions, but the question is, does he want to? And when he says that he will find a way to make us all want to be saved and to choose him, he did find that way. That way was in Jesus Christ. He said his son as the greatest expression of his heart and love. But the problem is, even in following Jesus Christ, we still have to make a choice. You remember in John chapter 6, when it says that the those that were listening to the discourse about the bread of life, they went away. Jesus asked his own disciples, do you also want to go away? Well, I presume that question then has the assumption behind it is, you're free to go away if you want to, but do you want to? Uh, well, if we're not free to walk <laughs> away from God, then... Um, then there's there's no such thing as free choice with respect to God. But again, loving God with all one's heart requires us making a choice, just as it does in our, our human relationships. Yeah, the, the logic that flowed from Calvin, God is all sovereign, and then they had also assumed that because man is all completely... Um, uh, def- uh, depraved led to certain philosophical, logical conclusions that really formed the basis for Calvin's understanding of predestination, double predestination, who was going to be in heaven or hell. God is so sovereign. He has chosen since man is not free, as you're Ken emphasizing. Uh, And so you end up with this philosophical, supposedly theological, but more philosophical arguments that left all kinds of people out of heaven. In fact, there was, I think, over a hundred and some years that no Calvinist sent missionaries anywhere because they believed that if God had so predestined the lost to go to hell, then there's no need for us to go tell them the gospel because if God wants to save them, he will. But that also came to America and the Puritans, and you end up with Jonathan Edwards, you know, we're, we're on this thread, on the, you know, hanging from the, the like a spider on the over the flames of hell because of our sovereign angry God, which then led to people reacting to that. Wait a second. If God is all powerful, I'm reading again this man's argument, and God is all loving, and he's created us all and wants us to be saved. 
then maybe he will find a way for us all to be saved and no one will go to hell. These are the very words of the Unitarian, of the universalism of New England universalism that came out of the 18th century yeah. that led to the theology of Harvard and that now has infected most of those Congregationalist Unitarian yeah. churches in New England, again, using this flawed logic. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's really true. And as you say, when you use this kind of inexorable logic that takes away the place of man in, in, in the choice, uh, in choosing his salvation, uh, then you get, and, and it beca- if it becomes ugly by in, in the way that Calvinism could at different times did, then you get the opposite reaction. What do you get? Well, you get kind of a, you know, touchy feely universalism where everybody is saved and there's no, there's no demands of the gospel. Um, actually, it, it, this comes up in our passage today in Romans five twelve through twenty one because in this passage Paul makes the declaration about being all being sinners and all being saved. This all has to be placed in the context of the larger biblical picture in that God reaches out in love and is calling men, but man has the choice to make. Let's jump into the passage then, Ken. Um, Romans five twelve through twenty one, and and any of you listening, if you can open your Bible, look at the passage. Um, if not, if you can, go to the website and look at the uh, study sheet that Ken and I have put together. It's been um, uh, it's a diagram that tries to visually show the logic of the passage, um, and there's a certain sense. I don't think, Ken, that any of the commentators have ever um, suggested that behind this is a hymn, hymn, as uh, other places of Scripture like Philippians 2 and and such. But yet there is a a certain poetic um, phrasing of St. Paul's logic, especially in verses 16 through 19. 20, in which it reminds the, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the Psalms, then it, in the background you're hearing the, uh, the technique of the Hebrew Psalms, where Hebrew Psalms don't rhyme or have rhythm, instead they repeat ideas. Uh, in the morning the sun rises, yea, the, the day has come. Uh, you know, so it said the same thing twice, but in different ways. That's all through the Psalms. Sometimes line one is the same as line two. Sometimes line one is the opposite of line two. And so you have, yea, right. he was a good man, but but she was not or whatever, you know, so it's whatever it's. And there's a bit of that in here. Yeah, like some, when Psalm one is like that, which is not, not by accident Psalm one, because it's that it says the that uh, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of God. And then in verse 4, it says, but the wicked are not so, not like this. They wither on the vine and so forth. So, yeah, this, this, and then that's the contrast. There's both continuity and discontinuity there in the sense that the Adam is like, Christ is like Adam. He's the first, Adam is the first man. Christ is the second man, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But at the same time, what they brought was completely opposite. Adam brought sin and death. Christ brought righteousness and life. Behind this whole passage, Ken, again, we're looking at verses 12 through 21. 
um, and maybe the, the the key verse just to bring out is uh, verse 15 that the free gift is not like the trespass in the sense that behind this whole thing we're talking about the free gift of grace that we've received through Christ as a result of his death and the trespass and all that that brought is what Adam brought on mankind Uh, but behind this whole passage Ken is this the theology of the type anti-type, Adam and Christ. And it would be good to talk about that a bit because um, without that assumption, the theology here doesn't make sense. No, that, that's exactly right. And, of course, Paul says here explicitly uh, that, uh, that Adam is the type of Christ. He says this in verse 14. He says, Death reigned uh, from Adam to Moses, and even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's transgression, who is a type of the one to come. Now, the word type is actually a transliteration of the Greek word tupos. And tupos meant a mark, like if you have a mark on your skin or if you have a mark on the wall, that's called a tupos. Um, or it's a sign, it's an indicator. And Paul tells us in uh, Galatians that the law of the Old Testament was a paedagogos. It was a a teacher. It was a it was like a um, a tutor to bring us to Christ. All of the Old Testament is like that. It's a type of the things that are to come. And so Joseph, for example, in the book of Genesis, becomes a type of Christ, right? Because he leads the people. He saves the people of God, his own family which are the, the, the sacred or royal lineage, and he saves them. David is a type of Christ. What he's saying here is that Adam is a type of Christ. That is, he pointed forward in his very life to the one who was to come. And, and how are they the same? Well, they are the head. They are the, they are the head of their respective humanities. Adam is the head of the of all humanity. So when he sins, all are brought into a sin, a state of sin and death. Christ is the head of the new humanity. For all for whom he died, they become part of his family as well. This uh, idea of Adam being the type and Christ the anti-type um, is a theology that we contemporary modern Christians, excuse me, uh, take for granted. It's been a part of our tradition. I, I don't think there's any Christian modern movement that doesn't accept this basic theology as a foundation to all of our doctrines. Um, and But maybe for that sense, we take it for granted that Adam, therefore, points to Jesus. And um, at what point does this begin? Well, I think it's interesting to point out that when when Paul is writing Romans and assuming that his audience already knows and accepts this uh, these axioms, therefore, upon which he builds his logic in this passage, he's already assuming they doesn't have to kind of start from scratch and build this. We see that this logic is already in 
the letter that Paul had previously written to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, most of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is based on this same logic. We hear it in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So this is a theology that is is early, early in the history of the church, core to the theology. And I believe, um, Ken, that this was the key of what our Lord gave to the two men walking along the Emmaus Road. The two men are walking after the resurrection of Jesus, and they don't get it. Yeah. And they're wondering, what do we yeah. do? I mean, they're, they're not ignorant. They know the Old Testament. They don't quite get it. But then this man, unknown to them, walks up beside them and starts talking to them. And, and he says, oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should sh- suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, Ken, you know, there's the logic. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter his glory? The Christ, his suffering, and the glory. So you have the flow of Christ, his death and suffering, and then the result of that, which was his glory, forms the foundation for the theology of this passage where you have Adam's sin leads to death, Christ's in his death and suffering leads to redemption, glory. And then in uh, Luke, I'm reading from Luke, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It seems to me that there's the place where our Lord opens their eyes to see all the types and antitypes in scripture that all point to Jesus. Yeah, I know. There's, I think you're I think that's very legitimate, and I really like the way that you um, have laid it out here in this text uh, online, but also this fact that the point that Paul wants to really get to is expressed in, for example, in verse 17, where he says at the second part of it, much more will those reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I think that reign in life is not an accident or is not just an, an offhanded phrase. Because remember that Adam in the garden was made, uh, he was like the vicariate. He was the substitute for God on earth. God gave him the authority to rule over the earth. Remember it says in Genesis, rule the earth and multiply and so forth. Well, now it's what it's saying is that through Jesus Christ, those who receive grace and faith will become like little kings, you know, they'll they'll reign in life. But the life that they reign in is not just an earthly life, it's a heavenly life that is infused in us through baptism, through the sacraments, and lifts us up to be one with Jesus Christ. And then they go on, it says, they receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. So I think what Paul's talking about here is this wonderful succession of Christ by his death. He gives us righteousness, and, and then that gives us eternal life. Okay, so we have this flow. Adam, his sin leading to death. Right. And then that death spreads to all men. And then verse 12, and this is a key theological issue, depending on how you interpret it and translate it. Because my translation says, so death spread to all men, 
because all men sinned. And Ken, this is a key point, because the question is, is Paul talking about that death is a result for all people because of the original sin of Adam, or is death spread to all people because of their individual sins? Yeah, this this is a tricky verse. Verse 12, in the, I think it's the RSV you have here, therefore as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The words and so could be translated, and I, I think personally that they are to be translated as so also. It's the second half of the comparison. So the first half is, as sin entered into the world, so also death spread to all men. Sin entered into the world that through that one man that was Adam, and because of that, death came into the world. And remember what it said in Genesis? God warned them that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you on that day you will die. Well, death came into the world through their sin. But then it says, so also death spread to all men, and now here's the phrase that's disputed. Because all sinned, meaning that it was because of their personal sin that death spread, or was it in whom all sinned? The Hebrew, the Greek words epho here is the word epiho means be, it could mean because, and actually the modern Vulgate gives you that, but Jerome translated it epho as in quo. And in other words, translated like this. So also death spread to all men in whom, referring back to the one man. The word whom is ambiguous in English. It could be singular or plural, but not in Latin. In Latin, in quo means in whom one man. In other words, in that one man, all men sinned. And that's the basis for the idea that original, that the sin of Adam is transmitted, as it were, and has corrupted our nature so that we are guilty in Adam. Now, to the American individualist mind, that sounds weird, but it's not when you think about human solidarity. All right, Ken, that's, that's good. We'll, we'll pause there. We're going to take a break. Ken, when we get back, I'd like you to discuss also why this verse particularly emphasizes the danger of individual interpretation of Scripture and why we need to interpret Scripture within the whole context of the entire apostolic tradition. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home. 
Marcus's guest is revert to Catholicism, Father Bill Niemiller. He'll discuss how the Holy Spirit led him to a call in the Catholic Church on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Kenneth Howell, and we're uh, looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, just some thoughts on this passage. And um, we were, um, I wanted to, uh, we, we were discussing just before the break this uh, this question as to whether the, the actual Greek language in verse 12 can be interpreted to mean that death spread to all men because either A, all have sinned, therefore, as a result of their individual personal sins, or as a result of Adam's sin. And as you pointed out, Ken, the Greek text could be taken either way to a certain extent, depending on how you interpret it. And I want to point out that this is one of the main examples, one of the main reasons why the whole idea of private interpretation of Scripture alone is dangerous and why it's flawed, which is the reason that our country, our world is overflowing with thousands of different Christian groups, often similar but sometimes at at fisticuffs from each other because of different interpretations of passages just like this. And it points out the danger of private interpretation that can lead to conclusions that can divide people, as opposed to recognizing that Scripture, historically, was always a part of the apostolic tradition of the church, leading from the earliest days of the church. So, for example, Ken, you're an early church father scholar. When the early church fathers would run up against a verse like this and wonder how to interpret it, or a theology that would come from a verse like this, you would have Tertullian and uh, Irenaeus and uh, then eventually Augustine. And the, what, the way they would answer this is say, well, let's examine the teaching of the earliest churches. Can it be traced back to the apostolic tradition of one of the earliest of the churches? And, you know, there's, so if you wonder, well, what's going on here? And and I think the key here, Ken, is that in the whole context of the passage, the flow of the theology is that the the sin of Adam therefore led to sin and death being spread to all people, 
mm-hmm. in the such that his one sin is countered by the one suffering and death of Christ that led to justification righteous for all. If you interpret verse 12 as personal sin, it totally undercuts that theology. Yeah, well, this is an excellent point you're making because there's a still today a huge difference between um, Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians and theologians who are not in union with Rome and Western Latin theology. The claim that the Easterners make is that Augustine introduced a foreign idea of original sin being transmitted from generation to generation. But um, I don't think that's true at all. I think it's right here in, in this passage. And you see it in the in a passage like when Paul says at the very beginning of this passage in chapter 12, when he says that as sin was through one man, he noticed that, the sin comes through one man and comes into the world and death comes into the world through sin. In other words, when that sin was introduced into the world, death was immediately introduced into the world. Notice again in verse 17, Paul now uses, he says, through the transgression of the one man. It wasn't through the many transgressions. He says it's the one transgression of the one man that brought sin into the world. That and I think what Paul is thinking of here that makes us understand then that 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 what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't just one sin among many. It was the test, the one test that God was giving them. And I think that some some theologians, both Protestant and Catholic, have concluded I think rightly that this was like a the big test. If they had passed the test and not eaten of that tree, God would have given them the confirmation of eternal life forever with him. But they didn't pass the test. And therefore, sin came into the world, and death came into the world, and was passed on to all men. You'll notice, by the way, uh, let me look at this again in the Greek text here. It says, uh, yeah, it says that death... And the word is diarkoma, and that means to pass through. So it was passed through to all men. And then it comes that, that controversial phrase, in whom all sinned or because all sinned. Now, they take the view that it means because all sinned. That is, the reason that men die is because they themselves sinned. But Paul makes the point in verse 14 that death reigned from Adam to Moses even when there wasn't a law to say, oh, it was wrong. Death was still reigning. Well, how was death reigning? Because sin was in the world. If uh, those of you listening, if you can, either now or later, if you go to the website and then uh, look at the study sheet, you can see the way we've laid it out to see the parallels of the logic. And if you look at the parallels and the contrasts in the logic, you can see that Paul's overall clear idea is that the sin of Adam led to sin being spread to all people and the result death. For example, I'll just read through and I've got them 
uh, uh, itemized as all those scriptures that be that I have an A in front of refer to uh, before Christ, before his death and resurrection. And then the verses that I've annotated with a B are the verses that receive to now life in Christ. Let me just read those, Ken. Uh, verse 12, A, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. If we go down to 15, for if many died through one man's trespass, verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, if death reigned through that one man because of one man's trespass. Verse 18, then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Verse 20, well, that's dealing with a different topic. So I mean, it seems like, Ken, when you add all those up, it seems clear that the overall of Paul's idea was that one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all men, led to death to all men. Well, and I think that if you if you look at the wording carefully of verse 19, that confirms what you just said. In other words, it says that the many were constituted. Now, in this version that you have here, it says they were made. But really, the Greek word here is kathisteme, and that means to, like, legally constitute something, although it can mean in many ways. Uh, so they were constituted sinners by not our sin, but Adam's sin. Now, we think, well, again... American individualism thinks that that's unjust. But remember that in in the case of Adam and Eve, that was the human race. So the human race was constituted sinners by that. And then because we are descendant from Adam and Eve, then we have inherited that, that guilt as well. The beautiful message that now he doesn't deal he doesn't say it here, but the beautiful message that he's going to go on to say in chapter six is that baptism takes away that guilt and leaves and makes us pure children of God. That's the beauty of baptism, right? It doesn't take away the concupiscence. We'll talk about that next week when we talk about baptism in chapter six, but it takes away the guilt. Now, notice the other thing to reinforce what you've said here, Marcus, is if it's our sin that makes us die, as opposed to Adam's sin that makes us die, then by logical reasoning in, the, in Paul's passage here, we would have to say that it's our choice of Christ that gives us life. But when you think about it, it's not our choice that gives us life. It's Christ who gives us life. It's just that our choice connects us to him. In the case of Christ, we choose to follow him, but it's his righteousness that gives us life. In Adam's case, we didn't have a choice because we weren't there. We were only there in his loins, as you might say. We've been focusing on the negative side of the equation so far. And uh, Paul, in all these passages, also accompanies the negative with the contrast, the positive. And Ken, what I'd like to do is I'm going to read through all those positive sides of these equations, positive sides of these verses, and then, you know, I'll leave it to you to tie these together, because as you've said, it isn't so much our choice, but as Paul says in verse 15, it's a free gift. Listen to how often when you read all these, which I've annotated with uh, the letter B throughout this section, listen to all these together, the 
the compilation of the argument of St. Paul. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. Verse 17, much more will those reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, who received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Verse 18b, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. And verse 19b, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteousness. And then down to 21 be grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, this is so wonderful because what Paul here is, is telling us that it, in a way he's saying, one, yes, Adam was like Christ. What he did affected the whole human race. What Christ does affects all the, the new race, the new, those who come to him. But at the same time, it's saying that God's grace is so far beyond our sin that it's, it's almost unfathomable how much God's grace exceeds our sin. Now, that ought to be an encouragement to every one of us, because who among us as, you know, conscientious Christians doesn't feel at times that we have been alienated from from God because of our sin? It almost reminds me of that text in the Psalms where it says, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I think it's maybe Psalm 126. But it says that we feel like that as Christians, when we have sinned and turned away from God, we feel like, how can I be happy? How can I be joyful when I'm, you know, when I've sinned in this way? What this text reminds us of is that when we sin, it's not God who's changed. His love, his grace is still there. It's we have walked away. All we have to do is to come back to that and to receive that grace again because that grace is so super abundant. You know, I think I forgot which verse you read it in. Uh, let me see if I can find Ah, It's verse, verse 20. It says that the law entered that the transgression may increase or abound. But where sin abounded, where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. Now, I don't know if this can come out in the in the uh, translation, but what what he's saying is that when it says that he, grace abounded, he uses the word hyperperisuo, which means he really it, it superabounded, <laughs> and he uses a a similar phrase in in chapter eight. When he says, he uses the word hooper nikao, we'll get to that later on, but he doesn't just use the word nikao, which means to conquer. He says in all these things, we are not just conquerors, we are super conquerors. We're more than conquerors. We're hyper. It's like going into hyperspace, you know, <laughs> where you start going the speed of light, right? You're no longer in this dimension. You're in a dimension that's far beyond understanding. He's saying that when you enter into the realm of grace, you are entering into a hyperdimensional world, 
a world where grace is just flowing all over. And that's the contrast here. So the similarity between Adam and Christ is the background for the contrast that Adam's sin brought us into sin and degradation, but Christ takes us way beyond that into the realm of grace. Ken, I'd like to uh, ask you to address two false theologies that come out of these very passages, which again emphasize why the Scripture must be interpreted within the context of the entire book of Romans, within the entire Bible, and within the context of the entire teaching of the church. Um, And that's absolutely essential, because there's two, which I consider not just false theologies, but major heresies, which have come out of private interpretations of these, the positive sides of these passages, if you will, Ken. One of them is universalism because of the interpretation of verses like 18, then as one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. Um, which seems to be parallel to what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now this kind of kind of reiterates what that email opinion was that we addressed earlier where the person said, Well, God is all-powerful. He wants everybody to be saved, so he won't let anybody be saved. Christ died for all. All will be saved. So that becomes the, the foundation for universalism. But the, the very almost the opposite of that is the once saved, always saved idea that's so rampant in a cert, certain part of Calvinism, which also comes from this passage because, for example, um, it says, verse 19, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. There's an aspect of the way these verses can be interpreted is that it's a free gift that is given to those to whom God wants them. And it's not something one can be lost since it wasn't something that we gained. It was a free gift, and therefore we will be saved. Yeah, yeah. I think the I, I think there's so many different ways to to look at this, but it's it's also a debate not only among you know Catholics and Protestants, but it's even a debate between Calvinists and Arminians, right? Yep. The, the the followers of Jacob Arminius and the Wesleyans. So Methodism is a very much of an expression of of a non-Calvinist theology, and you know of course you and I both were Calvinists, right. but one of the things that I came to see about that was that. Ultimately, Calvinism, in spite of their protestations to the opposite, it, it ultimately leads to the idea that any, what we do, the human actions, the human decisions that we make, don't have any significance with regard uh, to salvation. Um, if you took these passages by themselves, you could run along that road and come to those conclusions. But as you said earlier— Everything that we read in the Bible at any given point has to be placed in the context of the whole. And we can't we can't leave. uh, And it's the same way with the American Constitution. Uh, I've been reading a book about the Constitution of the United States and how it can be misinterpreted if you take one phrase or one section and just run away with it. I think that's what's happening to the 14th Amendment today. Uh, Just the other day. 
in uh, in the reading of Scripture, uh, I came across a passage at the end of Second Timothy. And by the way, Second Timothy was probably the last book that Paul wrote, uh, the last letter that he wrote in the New Testament before his death. And it's very significant here what he says. He says to Timothy, this is in First Timothy 4, 9 and following. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly. Demas has abandoned me by loving the world. <laughs> now, yeah. I don't know how in the world you can, you know, he's gone to Thessalonica because he loved the world. He abandoned me. Crescus has gone to Galatia, Titus to Domitia. Luke only is with me. This was read in the uh, the Feast of St. Luke this past Saturday. Mark, take bring Mark with you. Bring him with you because he's profitable for the ministry. Now look down in verse 14, and he says, Alexander the coppersmith has uh, done me a great deal of harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. May we conclude then that Alexander, once having been a companion of Paul and Christian, is once saved, always saved? I don't think the words of Second Timothy 4.14 justify that conclusion. What, this, what, what we have to say about Alexander is, as far as we know, unless he repents, he's going to receive the reward of the bad things he's done to Paul. In other words, Paul here is telling us, uh, he, he's not contradicting himself in Romans, what he wrote earlier. He's simply saying that from the words of Romans, you can't conclude that everybody is going to be saved. Right? And in other words, it does depend upon how we live our lives. What Paul is emphasizing in Romans and in 1 Corinthians is that the scope of God's intention is to save all if they respond to the grace that's given them and if they live their life according to uh, the commands of Christ or what St. Thomas Aquinas called the new law. Yeah, that Ken, and you and I have talked about that. It seems that one of the main differences historically in Catholic theology and non-Catholic theology is that often in non-Catholic theology, well-meaning and sincere folk who desire to live the scriptures and follow Christ yet get caught up in an either-or mentality on theology, whereas traditionally Catholics have, have, have been comfortable with the both-and in the mystery of things, yeah. the both end of God's sovereignty and the freedom of a man's will. How do you put those two together? Well, uh, Protestants mm -hmm. generally take one side or the other. Arminians emphasize the, God's free, the freedom of man and the Calvinists emphasize the sovereignty of God. And I remember from seminary experience, often Methodists and Calvinists couldn't sit together in the same room without fighting. I remember that. Uh, I lost a friend who was a Methodist because <laughs> I was such a strong Calvinist. But we Catholics recognize both sides of that equation and the mystery of it and yeah. often leave it there. You know, Christ has the, certainly God wants all to be saved and has the power to do that, but has so chosen to allow this freedom, which is a necessary part of God's love. Well, that's, you know what's helped me in this regard is to to be willing to live with uh, with paradox. And by paradox, I don't mean exactly a mystery. I certainly don't mean a contradiction. By paradox, I mean that you affirm that two things are true, but you're not quite sure how they, how they fit together. Let me give you an example. Some of the experiments that are done suggest that light has these little particles in them, like photons, you know. Okay, but there's other experiments that they do with light, which suggest it's not like a 
a, a little atom or a little photon, a little particle, but it's like what? Like a wave. And you know that because you studied a lot of science uh, yep. in your background. So is, is light that's coming to us from the sun and from other the stars, is it little particular little, little uh, particles? Or is it like a wave that's like the wave in the sea? Well, that seems to be a paradox. And by the way, that's never been resolved. And we still recognize it looks like a wave. It looks like that. And it's a paradox how those two things could be similar. Well, in this case, what you mentioned, the paradox is that if if we say that a man has free will, he can choose to obey God or not. On the other hand, God is completely sovereign and could treat us like robots if he wanted to. It's just he's chosen not to do that. Now, why would he do that? Because we're made in his image. We're rational creatures like him. And to be rational creatures means that we have to have a freedom of choice. So here's these two things, man's freedom and God's sovereignty. And this is where the Catholic Church says there's a beautiful paradox and mystery in the middle that we accept. Maybe if we close, Ken, with the question, okay, now what, or so what, uh, from these passages for our audience, it seems, Ken, that maybe the repeated phrase or repeated idea throughout this as a summary is the end of verse 14, the one who was to come, 15, that one man, Jesus Christ, in verse 17, through the one man, Jesus Christ, and then down in verse 20, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, that's the bottom line of this whole passage. The reality is Adam's sin and what it's done to us, it's brought death. Christ did this, so the bottom line is the one man, Jesus Christ. Well, I think that gives us a lot of hope. You know, if we look out in our world today, Marcus, you and I, I know, agree, and I think probably many of our listeners agree, that um, that it looks like the hell's the churches the, the the it's going to hell in a handbasket, but no, it's not. Uh, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He's guiding the church. Our go- our job is to preach the gospel and to accept Him as our Lord, our Savior. To accept that free Absolutely. gift of grace that we've been the fact that we hear about it as a gift of grace, and then we have the opportunity to respond. But when we look at the whole picture. That means responding all that we are, body and soul, to become living sacrifices, as Paul would later say uh, in this book of Romans. All right, Ken, thank you for joining us once again. All of you, I I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Thank you for joining us. Again, go to deepinscripture.com if you want to find out more about this program and the earlier episodes. You can also go to our our larger website, chnetwork.org, where you can find out more about the work of the Coming Home Network. International. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week.